Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Not since the Civil War, perhaps, have we been as tribal as a nation as we are today. What's worse is that today, through the power of modern communication, social media, bifurcated business models, unlimited economic choice, and 24-7 news, we can be siloed from dawn to dusk. We never have to associate with people whose views are different than ours. We never have to friend people with uncomfortable or different points of view. We get our news, our products, and even sometimes our meals only from people that agree with us. It's all very comfortable. But what have we lost in the process? Intellectual challenge, empathy, understanding, compassion, and getting out of our comfort zone are all lost. All so we can be cocooned in the warm bath of confirmation bias. And as bad as this is in society at large, Nowhere is it worse than on our college campuses. A world where safe spaces mean don't ever challenge me. Fifty years ago, college campuses were alive with ferment and, yes, even revolution. Today, too many of them represent a world of intellectual cowardice and laziness. And no one knows this better than my guest, Zachary Wood. Zachary Wood is a Robert Bartley Fellow at the Wall Street Journal and a class of 2018 graduate of Williams College, where he served as president of Uncomfortable Learning a student group that sparked national controversy for inviting provocative speakers to campus. His recent work has appeared in numerous publications, and he's the author of a new book entitled Uncensored, My Life and Uncomfortable Conversations at the Intersection of Black and White America. Zachary Wood, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Jack. It's great to have you here. Uh, I want to begin by telling our listeners a little bit about your experience at Williams and, and uncomfortable living and when you invited a particularly controversial set of speakers to the college. So when I got to campus, I was determined uh, to engage with the life of the mind in ways that, allow, that would allow me to broaden my intellectual horizons. I wanted to engage with views that I found uncomfortable, views I found unsettling, views I knew I disagreed with in order to gain a deeper understanding of the world and of humanity. And I was deeply disappointed when I found in my experience in classes and in common rooms, dorms, and dining halls that it was very difficult to have conversations about issues of race and class across political divides. And so that then challenged me and motivated me to think about ways in which I could promote viewpoint diversity on campus and begin fostering the kind of conversations I looked forward to having. Did you have a sense initially what that resistance was about, why it was so difficult, why you couldn't bring these controversial views to people? You know, over the, you know, in my time at Williams, I gained a deeper understanding of the many factors that contribute to it. Uh, you know, in some sense, human beings are naturally tribal, and in many ways, uh, we can be insular with respect to the values and beliefs we hold. We, we favor being around those that we agree with. And on college campuses, there are a number of other factors. One, you have the fact that they are predominantly liberal, and this creates a kind of echo chamber in which what you're likely to hear in most every setting are liberal beliefs and progressive values. Uh, in addition to that, you have social media, which also plays a role in that you know, Twitter and Facebook have algorithms that continually feed us uh, news and information that we agree with, sources we favor. And so I think those, that combination of factors contributes to uh, the issue with speech that we see on campus. In many ways, though, it seems worse on campus. There, there's almost a resentment 
of controversial views. While in the society at large, people certainly seek out the tribalism that you're talking about, there seems to be a stronger pushback to anything controversial within colleges these days. Yes, I agree with that. I think that on colleges, what we're seeing right now is uh, there are illiberal tendencies that are making it very difficult to build a fuller understanding of the complexity of the issues that we should be thinking about. And you'll see on the left, actually, uh, with respect to student activists, many students who believe that if someone deeply disagrees with me or is saying something that I find hurtful, they simply do not have a right to exist in this space. Talk a little bit about how your open-mindedness, your willingness to, to really participate, to welcome controversial views came to you. So I, growing up, I had a mother who placed great emphasis on my education and who, who stressed that it was the one thing I had control over in life. I didn't have control over my financial circumstances as a child. I didn't have control over what I did and did not have in a material sense. But one thing I did have control over was my pursuit of knowledge. She encouraged me to make the most of that, to learn everything that I could and to use knowledge as a means of making uh, a difference in the world. And so that motivated me from a very early age. Another kind of motivating question was, how is it that uh, intelligent, well-intentioned, motivated people come to see the world in such different ways? How is it that you can have you know, two political scientists or economists who are both equally trained who have very different ideas of what they think our country should be doing. And as you got deeper into this, explain a little bit about the resistance that you heard from classmates, the resistance that you heard from other students at college, and, and why you were unable in so many cases to convince them to be more open, to be more empathetic. There were a range of things that I faced with respect to personal attacks. Oftentimes, on social media, there would be things that were posted and shared and commented upon. And these are the, you know, these are the illiberal tendencies that are creating um, so much tension right now on campus. And when I would try to engage with these students, part of the difficulty was that, you know, we'd be talking past each other. I would be trying to explain what I saw as the value in the work that I was doing. And they were, you know, only intent on, on shutting that down. And so what I found was that in order to make progress, I had to try to make an effort to understand where they were coming from. And did you understand finally? I did. I did. I, you know, asking questions first, getting a sense of what motivates them, getting a sense of what about the work that I'm doing was most problematic for them and how they think I could structure uncomfortable learning in such a way that more people might be open to it or willing to engage with it was something that I was also able to do in the end. Talk a little bit about the other side of it. You talked a little about your story and how you came to this open-mindedness that, that you bring to it. What, if anything, was the common thread about others that were part of your group, others that were equally open-minded within the Williams campus? I would say that the common thread, one was curiosity, but curiosity tied to a desire to make a difference, to use the knowledge that we gain as college students 
in order to have a greater impact. Another thing in common was uh, a love of learning, a general love of learning and a desire to be challenged, um, a desire to, to find out the ways in which certain beliefs clash and to flesh out the tensions between certain ideas and to try to work through them intellectually. Why was there such resistance within a college framework, a place where there should be intellectual rigor? Talk about that nexus between one of the the foundational ideas of what should take place within a college framework and this resistance that we're seeing today. There was a significant degree of resistance. You know, the, the educational philosophy of a liberal arts college like Williams, you know, should be to have robust open discussion, to expose students to a wide ranging education that will empower them to be contributing members of society, right? That there is a civil benefit involved, a civic benefit involved. And it's interesting because when you get to campus, when I got to campus, I saw that while this was the educational philosophy that Williams had, this was not what was being practiced on a daily basis. In class, I had professors who were not fond of hearing what uh, conservative students had to say. In dining halls and dorm rooms, you know, I would hear often that you know, someone who thinks X is simply a bad person or someone who isn't to be trusted simply because they were conservative or simply because they had a different view on something like affirmative action and didn't support it. So when I noticed these things, I started thinking about what are steps that I can take, what are steps that administrations and professors can take to rectify this. To what extent was the debate about this within the framework, within the rubric of free speech, was that ever part of the discussion, or was it much more about this idea of safe spaces and, and, and the anger that was so much a part of it? It was both. There was, you know, free speech was the concern for some, safe spaces were the concern for others. There were those who believed that free speech is something that only benefits those with power and privilege, and that safe spaces are needed to ensure that minorities... Uh, feel uh, safe and able to exist in spaces in which uh, they are among the few. And so, you know, I tried to, to work with that logic and kind of clarify with people what I found to be problematic about it with respect to expression. And a big part of that was just active listening, really trying to understand what it is, what the root cause, the root issue was for them, and then trying to build out from there and seeing, you know, what things can we do to accommodate this without censoring and without limiting expression. What is the idea of safe spaces for those of our listeners that may not understand? Uh, a safe space is a, a setting or a space in which um, a group of individuals have something in common and only desire to be surrounded by those who share that thing in common and do not want to welcome uh, people with views that might clash with whatever that value or belief is. And what is the safety component about? Is it a fear of ideas? It's a circle of sameness. Mm -hmm. It's a circle of sameness in which people feel comforted by the fact that they are surrounded by people who think in the way that they do, perhaps people who look 
the way they who who are of the same race who are of the same background and because of that it's comforting because there's a sense of solidarity there and i believe that solidarity is very important and that we should encourage it but not in ways that uh detract from our ability to bring people of various ideological stripes to the table in order to have productive conversations about the issues that challenge our country the most is there any sense that the world might be different, that once they leave the, the cloistered atmosphere of the college campus, that those safe spaces aren't there? Or is there an expectation that they will live lives where those safe spaces continue to exist? There is a hope, uh, in some cases even a belief, that uh, our world should change in such a way that we should only ever be required to exist in safe spaces that anything else is extra and unnecessary and potentially harmful. I mean, is that frightening on some level? It is, it, it is certainly frightening. Because when you think about it, I mean, free speech is a pillar of our democracy in that it allows for dissent. It opens channels of dissent. It allows for a diversity of opinion, a diversity of, of, of backgrounds. And it allows people to find meaning, right, and to cultivate meaning in a world that is becoming increasingly multicultural. Right. And that, you know, if we are going to have increased diversity in intellectual settings, which is extremely important, we have to, you know, we can't make progress if we're simply going to say, I'm going to sit with the people who I know I will bond with based on the fact that we have a similar shared experience. It's not that we can never do that. It's that if that's all we're doing, then we're not going to be gaining the intellectual growth that we otherwise would be able to. Is this different in any way when it is about the subject of race as opposed to other political areas? I think it's more sensitive. I think it's more explosive. I think it's more delicate. I think it, uh, it hits a nerve. Um, and, you know, it's a, especially keenly felt for African Americans in this country and that we have to be mindful of that. And that in having these uh, and in thinking and talking about how we can address issues of expression and inclusion, it's important to not trivialize the grievances of minorities in predominantly white institutions, because in trivializing those grievances, we only make it harder to address them and we only make it more difficult to bring uh, people into these kinds of conversations who otherwise would not take part in them. The administrative response in, in your case, in the case of, of what transpired at Williams, was kind of fear to cancel a speaker because of fear of, of really what might happen. Tell us a little bit about what your sense was of, of where administrators were coming from in this. My administration thought that it would be bad press for Williams. Uh, I'm sure that there are administrators who were also worried about their own reputation and job security. Did they want to be known as the person who permitted a racist to come to campus? Did they want to be known as someone who allowed um, you know, a disruptive protest to turn into a potentially destructive event in which someone was harmed or hurt or threatened? So those were parts, part of the considerations. But you're right, it was a response out of fear. And I think that that has to be acknowledged and that as administrators in institutions of higher education, efforts need to be made to ensure that we're not only protecting social tolerance and promoting that, but that we're also protecting and promoting political tolerance. 
In the four years that you were at Williams, did the situation get better or worse? You know, it's interesting because while I have had a number of individual interactions that give me a sense of hope, broadly speaking, you know, I didn't see an upward trend. I think things are about the same as they were when I got there. What impact did it have on you personally? What, what did it do to you to see this intolerance, this resistance? And other than the organizational aspect of it and, and being part of Uncomfortable Learning, this group on campus, talk a little bit about ways in which it pushed you. Well, one, it pushed me in the sense that I had to learn how to deal with controversy. I had to think about what could be gained from controversy. And one thing I've found is that, you know, controversy can be really useful or can be really harmful. If you approach it in such a way that you see it as something that can only be negative, that can only be, you know, discomforting, something that can only be challenging and challenging in a way that detracts from your ability to contribute to a community, then it's more likely to be that. But if you look at controversy and see it as an opportunity to be a bit more open, to gain a deeper understanding, then there is something you can gain. If you put the energy and effort into listening before you try to persuade, then I think there are opportunities for growth there. I think that for those of us who want to make a difference in this world with respect to the issues we care about, controversy will be inevitable. And, uh, I hoped that my efforts with Uncomfortable Learning would prepare my peers to deal with that. And you had that personal experience with your dinner with Charles Murray when he came to campus. I did, yes. My dinner with Charles Murray was challenging. I knew beforehand it was going to be a difficult experience. And I had to, to think to myself, you know, what needs to be done so that this is a pleasant conversation? Because I deeply disagree. And as it turns out, you know, he was very cordial. Uh, he articulated his position eloquently. He did not persuade me one bit, but I did gain a deeper understanding of his argument, of the principles and values upon which his beliefs rest. And I think, you know, we were both able to glean aspects of each other's beliefs that we otherwise would not be able to, to really see and flesh out without being face-to-face in that kind of setting. Zachary Wood. His book is Uncensored, My Life and Uncomfortable Conversations at the Intersection of Black and White America. Zachary, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you.